Welcome to Sea of Fire Ministries with James Myers. In this series, we are considering men and women of the Bible, what we can learn from them, and observing God's constant faithfulness in the lives of His people. Today we continue our consideration of David. James takes us through from the 25th chapter to the conclusion of 1 Samuel. You can find out more about our ministry by visiting us at seaoffire.org, or you can view James's latest videos on YouTube at Sea of Fire Ministries. We hope this message serves to edify the church. Okay, so continuing our study, men and women in the Bible, and continuing our consideration of David, we are going to try, God willing, to get through the end of 1 Samuel today. But I would be remiss, you know, we've talked about seeing some of these men and women as heroes, e- even though they're imperfect. But one of the, there's a danger in that as well that I just want to kind of discuss fairly briefly. It kind of reminds me of the old philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard. He's called, he was called the Danish gadfly back in the 19th century. And he, used to, he would say, you know, let others complain that the world is wicked. My complaint is that it's paltry. What he was really saying was that men, people in the world, lack passion. It's actually antithetical what John, with what John Paul Sartre said, as we've considered in his book Nausea, that basically man is a useless passion. But what he was bemoaning, what, he, what his problem was, that men and women in his day, and certainly in our day, lack actual passion, lack fervor, this kind of a thing. And so when he was bemused by this, he would go to the Old Testament. He, was, he would always go to the Old Testament because what he said was, there men are men and women are women. You know, they, they murder, they commit adultery, they, you know, they cheat, and these other things. Now, that might kind of imply to people that that legitimizes these things you know it legitimizes the committing of adultery and murder and so forth but that's not at all what he was saying the bible also warns us to not judge ourselves by ourselves or around ourselves in other words we must not judge ourselves based on some sort of measurement that we make up ourselves and we also can't find solace in the fact that others are far more wicked than we are. In other words, you know, it, it, you know, when we see the Hitlers of the world, we might conclude by that, well, we're not as bad as Hitler. And basically justification is based on, and basically God grades on a curve, you know, that, that's, you know, so long as you're not completely as depraved as other men and women, uh, then you might find solace in that. Let, let us always remember that the standard The standard of holiness and the standard of righteousness is perfection, is absolute perfection. So we don't judge ourselves by ourselves, and we don't judge ourselves surrounding ourselves or around ourselves, okay? What we do, especially as we've continually, God willing, I hope is what we're all focused on, is while we're considering these men and women, we are really focusing and honing in on the faithfulness of God. And we will see much of that today. Okay, and that's why I kind of wanted to throw that out. But again, there's a danger in recognizing the, the falls of even David and justifying our, our own. And the Bible makes it clear that, that, that that's great danger that we must stay ourselves from. Okay, so now, again, what we must do from here on out, really, at least as it applies to David, is jump into the narrative. Now, the 25th chapter of 1 Samuel is one of my favorite chapters, okay? And so, we're just, now, again, the first verse, as we considered last week, 
Sam, then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered, and gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. This had to be very grievous to David. Okay, As we mentioned last week, he starts to lose many of his close confidants. And Samuel was something of a mentor to him. He anointed him as king. You know, and he was a faithful prophet. When David was fleeing, remember, he went to Ramah to seek refuge with Samuel. And then they both had to flee. So Samuel was a, was a trusted ally, so to speak, a dear friend and mentor, really, of David's. And he loses him. And understandably, David takes off into the wilderness, probably to gather his thoughts. But this, again, this is a very grievous deal. You know, last week we considered the murder of all those priests. And now he's lost Samuel, the prophet who anointed him. It's very sad, and so he flees into the wilderness. Now, in the wilderness, there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. The name of the man was uh, Nabal, and, his, and the name of his wife, Abigail. And she was a good woman, of good understanding and beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. So the name Nabal really means foolish. And we will see that perfectly applies to this man. Now, to be honest with you, he was probably named something that sounds very similar. And then they just kind of, we've seen that from time, you know, time after time after time. So Nabal really means foolish. Okay. And that's going to, that's going to be important to remember. Now, he was, so let's also see the comparison. So Abigail, she was a woman of good understanding. So she was a wise good woman and she was beautiful but the man was harsh and evil in his doings and then it says he was of the house of caleb remember caleb and joshua were the two faithful spies remember moses had sent out 12 and only caleb and joshua came back with the good news with the true news and trusting on the providence of god and the faithfulness of god and the 10 were compelling the people no the malachites are huge we are going to be destroyed and caleb and Joshua were the faithful servants. Caleb got a bunch of land just for himself because of his faithfulness. And this foolish man is actually from his lineage. Now, without saying too much about this, because again, yeah, we must be kind of quick through these uh, in order to get through the whole narrative. However, let us also let us see the decline here. Okay, sometimes you know. A certain generation, a certain generation of families can be righteous, can be good in God's sight and, and, and blameless, so to speak. And then that can descend very quickly where you take these things for granted. And that's probably very likely what happened in the, in the genealogy and the descendants of Caleb. Okay, so after a while, after a while, you know, he, one of his... Great, 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 great grandsons, you know, is a fool. Now, he's very rich, probably because, again, of Caleb. Caleb was given much land and a lot of goods, and so he's, he's still rich. Now, when David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. Now, just so you know, the shearing of the sheep would, uh, would be twofold, really, for clothes and so forth. But it's also meant to give comfort to the sheep. You know, when it's hot, you know, you want to shear your sheep so that they can be cool and a little bit more comfortable. So they're kind of a two-pronged attack with this kind of a thing. Now, so he told him, though, he told his young men to go up to Carmel to Nabal to greet him in my name. And thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, 
peace be to you. Peace to your house and peace to all that you have. So David sends his servants bringing peace. He's coming to his house bringing peace, proclaiming peace. Okay. Now I have heard that you have, you have shears. Your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them. Nor was there anything missing from them all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we've come on a feast day. Please give whatever comes to your hand to your servants and to your son David. So, especially at the time of shearing, there would always be these raiders. There would always be these people bent on stealing the sheep and the flocks of these rich people. You know, while they're busy shearing other sheep's, sheep, uh, you know, then they're open. You know, they're more, they're more vulnerable for theft and so forth. So David's basically saying, I was a wall surrounding your, your shepherds, okay? Not only did we not get anything or take anything, but we would not allow anybody else either. Now remember, the people, that, the men that are following David are discontented men and owe a bunch of debt. So I have to imagine there are at least a few of those men who were eyeing the sheep and waiting for a, an opportune time. And David said, basically do not do not touch his things that is not what we do okay now he's coming to Nabal he's sending his servants out to Nabal to say to say look we protected you we made sure nobody took anything from you we've been your angels so to speak we have been a hedge around you and and kept your things safe so when David's young men came they spoke to Nabal according to all the words of uh, in the name of David and waited then Nabal answered David's servants and said who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. Shall I then take bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men whom I do not know where they are from? So basically the, the servants come to Nabal and he says, who in the world is David? Never heard of the guy. I mean, who is this Jesse character? That is impossible. That, this man is very affluent. You know, he's, he's rich. He's he's. Of the, you know, he's of the high class. He's, he's in the know. He knows who David is. This is a great insult against David. This is a great insult against David. So he's, a, he's asking, who is David and who is Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each one from his master. And that's what he's basically alleging that David's done. He's broken away from Saul and now he's a fugitive because David's evil. And Nabal knows that's not true as we have seen. Ahimelech, all the, Abiathar, all these men, all these people, everybody adores him. Everybody knows David is a faithful servant of Saul. And he's basically accusing David for his own hide, really. Ultimately, he's trying to keep himself safe as we've seen what happened to Ahimelech, the priest who didn't even know about this stuff. Nabal apparently does, and he wants to keep himself safe. And so he sends out this great insult against, uh, against David. So basically, he also says, you know, shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to men that I don't even know where they're from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back, and they came and told him all these words. Then David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. So every man gird on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David and 200 stayed with his boys. David is furious. He, get, he gets this word back. And he, again, you know, he, he didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, fellas. Sorry, fellas. Sorry that didn't work out. I guess we're going to have to figure this out and trust in the providence of God. David is offended. Okay. And now he seeks vengeance for himself. That's very key to remember, okay, with what happens. David, 
commands all of his men, 400 men, but 200 of the other men stay with the supplies. And we'll see that kind of tends to be the case. So he, grabs, he tells 400, well, yeah, 400 of his men, gird on your sword, get on your sword and let's go. And David himself girded on his sword and they start to head toward Nabal to kill all of the males alive, which we'll, we'll see, to kill and destroy the house of Nabal and take what he asked permission to receive and just take it and just take it. This is his vengeance. Okay, He's going to tear down the house of Nabal. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, one of the shepherds, one of the servants of Nabal, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from, from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by day and night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, no one consider what you will do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his household. For he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. We will see. Well, let's just continue. We will continue. But we will see. Abigail didn't know anything about this. Okay, so one of the servants come, comes and tells her. That's indicative of really the relationship between Nabal and Abigail. It's probably something of, you know, a forced marriage, so to speak. Um, you know, again, he's very wealthy, so her father most likely, was very happy for her to marry him. And, you know, now she's stuck in this relationship. She know, Nabal won't tell her anything because he sees it as none of her business. He doesn't really see her as a helper comparable to him. He sees her as just another servant. He has time for when it's convenient for him, so, so to speak. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five sails of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. This is a feast, all right? I mean, you know, he has 600 men, but this is a lot of food, okay? David asked, David asked Nabal, just give to us whatever comes to your hand. Basically, just give to us what you deem suitable for you and and now Abigail makes much more than Nabal probably would have given him anyway and and so she loads them up on donkeys and she said to her servants go on before me I'm coming after you but she did did not tell her husband Nabal now again what we need to consider is is this a betrayal from a wife to her husband technically yes but again, she knows, and we will see, she knows that David is the Lord's anointed. And she also knows, in, in order to protect the innocent shepherds, you know, they weren't part of this deal. They were not part of this deal. And, and again, the, the, the servants are coming to, to her to implore her for her help in this. You know, we need to do something. So she's doing this on account of them, but we will see. It's really for David. All right. So it was as she rode on the donkey that she went down under the cover of the hill and there were David and his men coming down toward her and she met them. Let's set up the scene here, okay? So David, David's all girded up. He's got 400 of his men and they are furious. They are angry and they're they are focused on going to Nabal, you know, to Carmel where he is shearing his sheep. And they're all furious and they're probably talking to each other just mustering up all the courage all the all the anger all the ferocity to tear them all down okay so they are focused on there abigail abigail this woman a woman comes down by herself this is a very dangerous proposition 
She puts herself in harm's way again for the servants. But she comes down by herself, okay? Now that's one thing, right? Great bravery. But can you imagine what the men are thinking? You know, they're again, they're all hot to trot, ready to get to Carmel, you know, to, to kill all these men. And all of a sudden they see a woman coming, full of food. And they don't know who she is. They don't know who she is, but, but they're stopped right in their path from this one lone woman who has filled her donkeys with supplies and provisions for them. Again, they don't really know it's, it's for that reason, but they are stayed and they're stopped because of one woman. She's much like Jael. Remember Heber, her, husband's, her, her husband had defected and basically made himself an ally with Sisera and Jabin and basically you know, threw the Hebrews under the bus. She's, she's much like Jael. She is trying to correct what her foolish husband did. Now, you know, I can definitely say for my part, you know, there are many times wives protect their, their husbands from themselves. Okay, I can vouch for that myself. You know, I've been spared much embarrassment, much, much terrible sin, in all honesty, um, from the cautious words of my wife. And so that's basically kind of what she does. So now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David and bowed down to the ground. So she fell at his feet and said, on me, my Lord, on me, let this iniquity be. She had nothing to do with this. She had nothing to do with this. She is interceding for her husband. She's basically saying, okay, I know he did this, but, but look at this on me. Let's, let's, let's forget you ever sent your servants, you know, your men to Nabal. Let this iniquity be on me, okay? And let's, let's try to make this right. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord when, whom you sent. Now therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek, my, seek harm from my Lord be his Nabal. So basically what she's saying is, you know, since the Lord has held you back really from her, because of her, but she's basically saying, praise God, you know, because he is staying your hand in this. Let's remember that. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant. Again, she had no trespass. But for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord, and evil is not found in you throughout your days. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life, but the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. I mean, I think that's imagery going back to David and Goliath. And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel, that this will be no grief to you, nor offensive heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause or that my Lord has avenged himself. But, but when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservants. So in other words, she's saying, since God is staying your hand from this and, and keeping you from this great wickedness, because this will carry on, David. If you avenge yourself, you know, you might feel fine for about 10 minutes, but in 10 years, you will never forget this. 
You will always be remembering this if you were to actually go through with this. So she's saying, when that day comes and you are you become king and your days are well established and the Lord has established, remember your maidservant. Then David said to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. David knows. We, we, we attribute much to God's saints. You know, we wonder if, if God came to Mary because Mary was amazing. You know, did, did he choose David because he was a man after his own heart? No. God chooses whom he chooses. Uh, we've seen time after time after time he will choose servants despite his servants. Not because of them. Not because of them. He chooses whom he chooses. David knows this. David knows that. He, he, he knows he was anointed king. And remember, he's the youngest one. He's the youngest one. He should not have been the one anointed king. So he knows that God is choosing whom he chooses. So he knows that Abigail, as wonderful as she is, and as faithful to God as she is, she knows it is he knows that it's God's faithfulness that has stayed his hand and kept him from venging his own blood. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you have kept me this day from coming to bloodshed, from, from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as, as the Lord God of Israel lives, who has kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, surely by morning light, no males would have been left in Abel. So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have heeded your voice and respected your person. So... Now, briefly, what happens is, uh, you know, Abigail comes back, Nabal's drunk. He's drunk, so she doesn't say anything to him because he would have forgotten anyway. So the next morning, he's got a hangover, she tells him. She tells him what he, she had done, and he becomes irate to the point of sickness. His heart fails, and he becomes deathly ill. And then 10 days later, God did avenge David. God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So before we want to lift our hands to, to avenge ourselves, that is not our place. That is not our place. That is God's place. He will, he will avenge those who hurt us. But God willing, it's actually by Christ on the cross. We don't, we don't desire that, that, you know, just because we've suffered by the hand of a man or a woman, that they should perish eternally. You know, I hope we don't. I hope we don't. And so we, but either way, God will avenge those who, who hurt us and seek to do our harm. So he, he does. He avenges David. And Nabal dies ten days later. And David ends up marrying Abigail. She's one of his wives. And he must have, every time he saw her, I can almost guarantee you, he thought back to that day where God stayed his hand, where the faithfulness of God was so obvious that he couldn't ignore it. And he, and he praises God every time he sees her. What a wonderful memorial. What a wonderful living memorial. This is not a stone. <laughs> this isn't a heap of stones. This is a woman, one of his wives, one of his faithful companions. We will see he, has many, he ends up having many wives, but she's one of, one of his most faithful. Okay, now, going into chapter 26. So, the Ziphites, uh, David ends up going to this other place called Ziph, and, and the servants of Saul send, tell him, hey, he's out there. So, 
Saul gathered 3,000 of his men to go pursue him, just as he had. Remember last week we considered he had repented. Is that your, is that your voice, my son, David? You are far more righteous than I. You know, you will definitely be established king. Please remember that, you know, and, and swear to me, you will not cut off my descendants after me and all the rest. And now here he is chasing him down again. The heart of Saul is desperately wicked. He, he, there is no end to his madness. So he goes down to seek D David in the wilderness. And Saul encamped in the hill of Hakila, which is opposite Jeshimon by the road. But David stayed in the wilderness, and he saw that Saul had come after him in the wilderness. David therefore sent out spies and understood that Saul has, had indeed come. So he knows that he's there. Now what happens is, because we've got to go through this very quickly. Uh, he, what happens is he notices that they're all camped out, you know, and they're all asleep. They're all asleep. You know, the camp is asleep. And David basically says, who's going to come with me? And he gets a gentleman who, who's going to go with him. They go down there. And right next to Saul, right next to his head while he's asleep, is that spear that he was trying to pin David to the wall with. It's a huge spear and a jug of water. But he's got that spear right by his head. And again, this, this, this friend of his is saying, here he is. Let me go strike him down. The Lord has delivered him. Again, just like they did last time. Last week we considered, the Lord has delivered him into your hand. Go strike him dead. Let, or let me do it. And David says, no, no. No one must lift their hands against the Lord's anointed. He is still the Lord's anointed. Yes, he's been rejected king. But basically, God will deal with that. When God deals with that, okay, we will not lift our hand against the Lord's anointed. And so he, he says, Go and grab his spear, grab the jug of water. It ends up saying that David actually went and took it. And then they went back. And the same thing happens, right? He goes on this hill and cries out, cries out to Abner. Abner is Saul's general, okay? He, he, and we will have to remember Abner. He comes back in, in later stories. However, he's, he's basically Saul's general. And David shouts out, Abner, where, where are Well, let's... Now David went over to the other side and stood on top of the hill afar off, a great distance between them. And David called out to the people and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Do you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered and said, Who are you, who are you calling out to the king? So David said to Abner, Are you not a man? And who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not guarded the Lord your king? For one of the people came in to destroy your lord the king. This thing you, that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die. Because you have not guarded your master, the Lord's anointed, and now see where the king's spear is and the jug of water that was by his set. So he goes up on this hill and he starts to taunt Abner. Abner's supposed to keep Saul safe. He, they're at least supposed to have a watchman for the king while he's sleeping. Nothing's going on. There's no, there's no guard present. Abner is failing in his duty. So this would mean the death penalty for Abner. But basically, David's kind of taunting Abner here. He's saying, hey... You know, one of my guys wanted to strike down your king, and we had the opportunity. Where's his spear? Where's the jug of water that you know was right next to his head? Where is it? Then Saul knew David's voice and said, Is that your voice, my son David? David said, It is my voice, my, it is my, voice my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord thus pursue his servant? For what have I done? And what evil is in my hand? Now therefore, please, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If the lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it is the children of men, May they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day from sharing in the inheritance of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. So basically David's saying, you know, um, if, if, if God's 
set you against me. Let him accept an offering. Let's take care of this now. Let's 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 make a burnt sacrifice, <laughs> appease God, and and let's try to reestablish this relationship. If this is something because I've done something, let's make this right. But if it's just a bunch of men telling you all this nonsense, or if it's you yourself telling you a bunch of this nonsense, let the Lord judge between us. So now do, ne- do not let my blood fall to the earth before the face of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a flea, as we considered last time, as one hunts a partridge in the mountains, which is very difficult. You know, <laughs> hunting a partridge in the mountain is, it, it, talk about finding a needle in a haystack, it's very difficult. And so basically David is saying, all of your resources, all of your focus, everything that you are is focused on killing a flea. You have way too much other things to be worried about. Why are you pursuing me? Then Saul said again, I have sinned. Return my son, David. So he's telling him, return to Israel, okay? For I will not do you any harm anymore. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day, indeed I have played the fool and erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. And other, other things. So basically Saul is saying, I'm sorry again. Now this time I, I, I promise I'm sorry. Please return. Return to the palace. Let's reestablish you right where you were. These two times you have spared me. So I repent. I'm so sorry. Now again, considering the heart of Saul, he most likely would not have. He probably would have continued to try to pin David to the wall. We don't know. Much, David doesn't know this, and Saul doesn't know this, but this is the last time they will see each other. This is the last time David ever sees Saul. Now, the beginning of chapter 27, and David said in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. God has delivered him out of the hand of Saul over and over and over and over again. Even just this time, he spared Saul again. And now, again, he is not trusting in God. He is not trusting in God. He sees, he's witnessed the faithfulness of God over and over and over and over again. And now he's putting his life back into his own hand. Let us remember that. This is, this is a grievous sin, ultimately, because he ends up fleeing to Gath again. Remember that's and he meets up with this King Achish. Remember, he had feigned madness the first time he had gone with Goliath's sword, which I thought was pretty cool, and he still probably has Goliath's sword. However, he, he goes to the Philistines. He goes to Gath, the capital of the Philistines, Israel's arch enemy, and basically makes peace with the king Achish. And basically, he asked for a certain area of Philistia for himself and his men. And he says, I will be your servant. I'm going to serve you. Okay. And Achish gets very encouraged by this. He's very excited. David's a warrior. You know, David's a very famous warrior. And basically, the, the Achish thinks, You're, he's going to be my servant forever. You know, he is mine now. Okay. And now I've made him a, a reproach to the Israelites. So he gives them this area. Okay. He gives them this area that remains the king's area, the, 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 the king of Judah's area for all time. Okay. So he's given this area. And then he goes and attacks the Amalekites in different areas. And then he comes back and tells Achish that I, you know, I, destroyed, I, I went and destroyed like the southern tribe of southern part of Judah and these other parts of Israel. So he's lying to the king. Okay, he's lying to the king. Now, again, in war, deception is actually legitimate. It's, it, it, within the moral framework of things, deception within a battle, a war, is fine. It's 
absolutely ethical okay and that's a story for another time but it absolutely is it's kind of like sports you know you, you you don't tell the other team what play you're about to run you you want you want some motion you want to fake a handoff you know play action and then throw the ball you want to throw them off you want to deceive them to gain the upper hand that's what happens during wartime it's fine it's absolutely legitimate but that's what happens he comes to to Akish and basically makes and makes himself an ally there now, what happens after this is Saul, the Philistines are going to come out and, and, and attack the Israelites, right? Now, David is the servant of the king, Achish, okay? Now, Saul tries to consult a prophet. He tries to get the ephod. He tries to find a priest, anybody, to declare the word of the Lord to him, to, to reveal if, he's going to be, if God is going to deliver him out of the hands of the Philistines and so forth, and God does not answer. Now before this, David had thrown out all the mediums, all the spiritists, in other words, all the witches. Okay, let's just put it that way. And so he can't get any answer from a prophet, a priest, or the ephod, or any of these things. And so he asked one of his men, is there a medium anywhere? And sure enough, and there's so much of this story that we will have to wait for for, for another time. Sure enough, there's one in Endor. Okay, there's one still hanging out that you don't know about. She's obviously rebelling against you, but yeah, she's out there. And Saul decides to go see her. He had thrown out and, and he's going to kill any medium and spiritists who are around there. But, you know, when again, when it's convenient for him, then he goes and seeks one out for himself. And sure enough, there's one here. And what he does is he asks for her to raise up Samuel. Now, there's all so much in this, in this narrative that we cannot consider this right now. However, in God's providence, ultimately, a figure of Saul emerges, or Samuel emerges, okay? Now, and, Im and immediately Saul fell to the, fell linked to the ground. Oh, I'm sorry, that was, that was after. So Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed, for the Philistines make war against me. And God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by the prophets nor by dreams. Therefore I have called you, that you may reveal to me what I should do. So again, he's even saying, I've been asking, I've been trying to get the word. I can't, I can't get a word. So I went to this spiritist, I went to this medium, I came to this witch to ask you. Then Samuel said, why do you ask me, saying the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? I'm not God, okay? I'm not the Lord. Why are you asking me? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. I told you, you were rejected as king, and he's finding a man after his own heart. And he's done that. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor. Remember, he had torn the robe of Samuel accidentally when he was trying to clench on onto him. Um... And given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon the um, Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Remember when he was commanded to go destroy Amalek, all the Amalekites, the men, women, and the children, and the livestock. And he kept some of the livestock, and he kept Agag alive. And then, remember, last week we considered he commanding him commanding Doeg to kill all of the priests. And then the city of priests, Nob, all their families, all their wives, their children, and their livestock. And sure enough, Saul is faithful to, to go against the command of God and, and perform this great wickedness against a bunch of priests. And now, but he is being judged because what God did command him, he did not do. And what God forbade him to do, that he did. And so Samuel's making it clear that the kingdom is out of your hand. 
Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. So you've been wondering and hoping that God's going to deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. No, you are going to be handed over into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day and all night because he is grieved. He is, he is stressed out here, okay? Before he even hears this word from Samuel, now he's completely distressed. He knows he's going to die tomorrow, he and his sons. And so he, he pretty much determines, I'm not going to eat anything. I'm going to fast. Remember, we kind of considered that for a little bit, considering Eli. You know, Eli was like, well, let the Lord do what he does. Same, Saul, at least, is wanting to fast, hope, and pray to God that he, that he relents. However, very quickly, he acquiesced to the witch, and he eats. Okay, his faithfulness is very weak. He has no faithfulness, but he'll feign faithfulness for a time, and he does there. So the Philistines... Gather all their men, all right? They're, the next day is now, today, okay? So they're all gathered together to destroy all the Israelites. And again, David and his men are servants of King Achish. And so all the lords of the Philistine bring all their men out, you know, in lines and so forth. And then at the end of it is Achish with his men and is David. And all the lords are like, what's going on, man? <laughs> we already talked to you about this, all right? This is the guy everybody's claiming, and everybody's saying Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. Why are you having him join the battle? Don't you, don't you expect that he's going to turn against us and destroy all of us? We know who David is. I don't want to fight against David. <laughs> you know, what are you, crazy? And, but Achish continues to say, no, no, trust me. He's very faithful not to worry. And they, they, they will not hear that, okay? They, they, they make it to where he has to get rid of him. So he goes to David and tells him. And, D and David first is, is like, what have I done? What have I done? I've been very faithful to you. That's not true. He's been lying. So, you know, there, there's much to consider with where David actually was and what his plan was, you know? I can't imagine, because Jonathan's on the other side. Jonathan is fighting with Israel. He knows that. So I've got to imagine his plan was to turn the tables and actually destroy the Philistines. However, that's not automatic because he doesn't implore God and ask, hey, do you want me to go fight? Do you, As we've seen him do time after time after time. This is a terrible account regarding David. Let me put it this way. Okay, He allies himself with the enemy and then once he's once he's sent off, he even pretends that he's a faithful servant to this wicked foreign king, an enemy of Israel, and he lies. And then again, he doesn't even implore God to see if he should go fight alongside Jonathan. Alongside Jonathan. And so, he has to leave and he returns to, uh, to the place. Now, when they return, the Malachites had come to that land, burnt up everything, and taken all the women, all the children. They didn't kill anybody. They took the women, the children, all the livestock, all the goods. And they went somewhere, and they're all partying and dancing, you know, and having fun. Now, when they, when they get back, though, to Ziklag, they notice everything's gone, everything's burning in fire, and their wives and their children are gone, all their livestock, everything's gone. The men want to stone David to death. 
Okay, so there's much turmoil here. There's much consternation. There's much conflict. But David, where does it say? Um, but, no. Um, uh, sorry. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's what David did. All these guys want to kill him. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And he said to Abiathar, remember, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. And Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? He wanted to make sure with these people. Now, see, this is one of those indications, though. Maybe he didn't go fight the Philistines because this happened. By God's providence, so there's much to be considered here. There much, many what-ifs and different scenarios. However, I, I think this actually does imply that David mo most likely actually would have joined the, the Israelites. Again, we don't know. We've got to deal with the narrative we have. But so all of their wives and all their children are gone. And he inquires of God, can I, you know, do I go pursue? And God says, yes, pursue. For you shall surely overtake them without fail and recover all. So David went, he and the 600 men who were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where, where those stayed who were left behind. But David pursued, he and 400 men, for 200 stayed behind, who were so weary that they could not cross the brook Besor. Okay, so 200 of the men, 200 out of the 600, are too tired to go. Okay, so they stay back with the supplies, and 400 men go with David, and sure enough, they defeat them all, they destroy them all, except for about 400 Malachites who fled away on camels and so forth so after that happens you know they they, they have this great rejoicing you know all the wives are, are returned all of their stuff is everything's fine you know they haven't lost one thing they get it all back david gets it all back and then um so david reco recovered all that the malachites had carried away and david rescued his two wives and nothing of theirs was lacking either small or great sons or daughters spoil or anything which which they had taken from them david recovered all then david took all the flocks and herds they had driven before those other livestock and said this is david's spoil now david came to the 200 men who had been so worried that they could not follow david whom they had whom they also had made to stay at the brook Besor. So they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless men of those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except for every man's wife and children, that they may lead them away and depart. So in other words, they're saying, they are not getting any of this spoil, which was theirs originally, but they can take their wives, they can take their kids, and get out of here. They, they are faithless men. We want no part of them. But David said, My brethren, you shall not do so with what the Lord has given us, who has preserved us and delivered into our hand the troop that came against us. It's wonderful faith from David. This is wonderful faith from David. He's saying, Look, men, we're, we're not the ones who went and pursued and, and destroyed all these men. God delivered us. Okay, so... Don't hold this against the men who stayed behind. It's just as well that these men stay behind with the supplies as you come yourselves, which is basically what he says. For who will heed you in this matter? But as his part is, is who goes down to the battle, so shall his part be who stays by the supplies. They shall share alike. So it was from that day forward, he made it a statute and ordinance for Israel to this day. So basically David made this a rule. Made this a rule so this never happens again. There must be some who stay behind the supplies, or the men and the, or the the women and the children. Otherwise, they're going to be taken. So there must be men who stay behind, and we will all share in the spoils. 
Now, when David came to Ziklag, he, he sent some of the spoil to the elders of Judah, to his friends, saying, here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. So he's, he's giving a portion of the spoils to the tribe of Judah, from who, to whom he belongs, okay, many of his friends, possibly his brothers. Remember, he, they had joined him out in the wilderness, out in the strongholds, and so his brothers are very likely in Judah, but some of his friends as well, who we are not detailed we don't have names and all that but but he shares not the spoil you know not only with the men who went not only with the men who stayed with the supplies but he sent some off to the tribe of judah as well chapter 31 now the philistines fought against israel and the men of israel fled from before the philistines and fell slain on mount gilboa then the philistines followed hard after saul and his sons and the philistines killed jonathan abinadab and malchishua Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with him. Real quickly. So Jonathan fell. That's, that's why it was the last meeting between he and David. Jonathan fell. Um, we don't have time to get into it. We're, we're going to conclude chapter 31, but I would implore you to read the Song of the Bow, found in chapter 1 of Second Samuel, I am going to read the end of it. Um, and this is where we get the term, how the mighty have fallen. I'm sure you've heard that. This is where it comes from. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battles. Verse 25, Jonathan was slain in your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the, woman, the love of women. So that was their relationship. So David has lost Samuel, and now he loses his closest friend, really his brother, his brother in the faith, more faithful than even his true brothers. These men were knit by not, not fleshly blood, but divine blood. They were really knit together by the blood of the Lamb. They were tight, they were close-knit, and David has lost his brother. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me, really torture me. I know what's going on, so he asked his armor-bearer, Please, kill me. You know, I don't, I don't want to be tortured. You know, I know I'm dying anyway, so please kill me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. Praise be to God. He also will not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. Now, you know, we've seen, you know, I'm sure you've seen in, in certain oriental um, practices when they commit suicide, they thrust the sword through. Well, we have to understand back then that wasn't as easy. They didn't have samurai swords, okay? So what they would do is basically, you know, fasten it to something and fall on it. That way, you know, they don't get too weak to thrust it all the way through when they're midway through kind of a thing. They want it to be done. So he fell on his sword. That's another term that's that's used frequently, you know, falling on your sword, which has many different definitions to it or many different usages to it, but this is where it comes from. So he fell on his sword, and when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. The armor bearer serves his master in, to death, to death. We must understand that. So he's, he's a faithful armor bearer, 
And, you know, I understand our own day we get these little issues and these problems with this. You know, I would be to God that we would ever have the same passion. You know, that we would be this dedicated to any kind of cause. You know, we're so fat and lazy with our modern day and just, you know, we bemoan wars, you know. <laughs> there are righteous causes. There are righteous causes. There are things worth fighting for. There are things worth defending and actually slaying other men for. This is a faithful armor bearer who now that his master is dead, he also takes his own life. Because he is much greater than many of us. Let me put it that way, because we have no semblance of familiarity with these things. And so we take ourselves for granted. We're in 2023, where we've had nothing but laziness and electricity and games and iPads and phones. And we know nothing of this harm. These men, these people were always getting hunted. Always having to roam around trying to find provisions. David and his men are starving before he goes to Nabal. So... Let's just recognize the time frame of these things and not be so quick to judge things according to our own folly, in all honesty. I mean, we, we, we consider the world as it is and think this is what it should be, and it's nothing even close to what it should be. Again, this is far less of a utopia compared to the old world. This is far more of a dystopia compared to the old world, and there's so much there. There's so much there. At least the wars fought then were actually, they actually had an end to them. They had an objective, they had a mission, and once the mission was done, they were done. These wars today have no end. They have no end. So I don't want to, you know, sorry. I don't, you know, it, it, I get tired. I get tired and frustrated when people think that this time, that this generation has ushered in such great peace Preaching peace, peace, when there is no peace. Okay? This world is fallen. It has been fallen. It remains fallen. And when the men of Israel, of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the... Oh, oh I'm sorry. So his armor bearer uh, saw that he was dead, so he fell on his own sword. So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled. So everybody takes off. And the Philistines go there and start to live there. They take over those cities. So what happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilbo and they cut off his head. Remember, that's what David had done to Goliath. And so I think that, again, once you kill, the, once you find the slain, you are going to make it a spectacle. It's kind of a warning sign, you know. Be ye warned as you enter a city or so and so forth. You know, a man is hanging. And that's what that's basically what they do. So they take his head um, and stripped his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. They're braggadocious about this. And then they put his armor in the temple of the Asherahs and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Gabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his son from the sons from the wall of Beth Shan. So in other words, Jonathan was fastened to the wall as well. Let's let's remember this, okay? This this faithful man, this wonderful godly man, has suffered under the hand of his father. 
his wicked father. Remember when we were considering honor. You know, he was honoring he who was not honorable. And even despite his own innocence, despite his own blamelessness, he still suffers because of the sin of another, which happens today, which has happened throughout time. Okay, this isn't specific, you know, the world of the Old Testament, the world of the Bible, and our world aren't all that different. You know, we think they are. We think these, these things are so terrible. I hate to live in this day, these days. Frankly, I'd rather go back to these days than where we are today. We, you know, we have such darkness around us, but we're so blinded by, our own, by the, all the influence around there that we don't even see it. At least they saw it. At least they embraced it for what it was. And what, it, and what it actually is. We do not. We do not. We take our age for granted. And think that this is the, this is the enlightened time now. We are enlightened. Since the enlightenment, which, since the enlightenment, which has no time for God. Has no time for God. Now we're so brilliant. And scientific. You know. And philosophical. And, and, and psychological. You know. Everybody's worried about you know, the mental state of everybody. I'm worried about the soul state of everybody, their spiritual state. Everybody uh, wants this mental health thing to go to a therapist and a psychiatrist. You want to go see a preacher, a preacher, a minister. Your soul is dark. Your soul is, is affected. Your soul is sick. You need a doctor. The only great physician who can heal you is Christ. There is no mental... Look, there are mental situations i'm not saying that doesn't apply at all as i've said there there are absolute true places for psychology but we have taken these way beyond that which even freud intended as as malicious as his intentions were we have actually taken it far beyond that which he was hoping for so that is a conclusion. Now, now, so these men went and took the bodies of Saul and, and of his sons from the wall, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now, this is not to legitimize, you know, cremation. Basically, Saul and his sons are beyond recognition. You know, they're not going to have an open casket, you know. So... In order for to to keep their bodies continually paraded about, they burn them. They burn them. This is a very faithful act from these men, and they will be rewarded by David. And we must remember that David would not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. We must remember this, and we and we do, and we must remember also his promise and his oath to Jonathan and to Saul that he is not going to be like all the other kings. You know, now, now that he's king, he is not going to kill their descendants. He ends up having to look for one. He thinks they're all dead. And he's in anguish because of this. So we want to remember those, these two things, okay? Now, since we've, as we conclude this part of the life of David, just before he's actually established king, he'll be king of Judah for seven years before he's established king over all of Israel. Okay, so some time will pass before he, I mean, very little. So we'll pro hopefully, God willing, get to that next week. However, let's recognize all the toil and the turmoil 
that David is suffering on account of himself and on, the, on account of enemies of the Lord, enemies of himself, Philistines, Saul, and, but then faithful men and women such as Abigail come to him to stay his hand from himself. God willing that we have these kinds of people surrounding us. God willing we have Jonathans. God willing we have Abigails. You know? And God willing we learn from our own mistakes and the mistakes and sins of others. David starts to do that. Now again, it's not perfect. We will see once he's established king, he's still not perfect. He is not the Christ. In fact, since we're considering David, I mean Christ as prophet, priest, and king, let me just briefly say right now, if the priest and the king would have actually been blameless and righteous in God's eyes, there would never have been need of a prophet. The offices of a king and a priest are there to mediate for the people, okay, to God ultimately, to God. You know, if, if, if we were faithful to the word of God, you wouldn't need a man coming out here saying, thus saith the Lord. Okay, if we were all perfect, and you know, if we were, if we were so in this age of, of enlightenment and perfection, you don't need to hear anybody tell you, thus saith the Lord. We're, we're set. We're set. We're all righteous and perfect and fine. If the king would have been faithful, and if the priests would have been faithful, there never would have risen a prophet. Okay, Let, let's, let's, we must recognize this, okay? And we, we'll, we'll kind of see a little bit more of that in our next message. However, as we continue with our, with our consideration of Dave, we'll most likely have another three weeks, actually. So, you know, it says uh, extended a little bit beyond that, which we previously anticipated. But again, it's essential to, to realize and to really learn the life of David, even as we consider other kings, however briefly we do. Uh, many, 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 many. Most of the kings are absolutely wicked. Most of the king, uh, some from the tribe of Judah are righteous. Uh, Joash, other Jehu is decent, but there, there are some. Josiah, it's fantastic. I love Josiah. Um, so you know, God willing, we'll, we'll, we'll get to them. Hezekiah is decent. Uzziah is great. Um, so, but we'll, we'll want to see and remember the backdrop of David as it relates to these other kings. Everybody will point, will look back to the kingdom of David, as we've seen, even in the prophets, you know, as they expect, expect the branch of Jesse to come. In other words, the son of Jesse, the son of David ultimately is coming, the, great, the Messiah, everything starts to be linked to David. So within the paradigm of the whole word of God, we must know who David is. Like I said, we, there's much to be learned by the prophets, but even in order to understand the prophets, there's much to learn to even understand them. Okay, so, and, and knowing who David is and his whole life and his whole experience lets us and opens our, opens our minds and our hearts to the other things that God has for us. Okay, he's an important figure. He's an essential figure. That's why, you know, Jerusalem is still called the city of David. You know, everything points back to David. It's all focused on David. When the Israelites were in the wilderness, everything was pointing forward to a king coming. Everything was pointing forward to David. Just like Christ, everything was pointing toward the Messiah. Now we look back to the Messiah until he comes again. But this is, this is, this is the way of the word of God. Okay, this is, this is the way of this world until Shiloh comes. Until that great day 
where the Son of God returns and reigns upon this earth forever with his, he who he is called to be kings and queens and priests forever, as we will see in our next session. Praise God. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Sea of Fire Ministries. We hope and pray this has blessed you in your walk with God, and we hope you join us again next week. You have been listening to Sea of Fire Ministries, where the Word of God is life.